I came for the suffering of my people. I came for their joy, for their gladness, for their abundance. I came because I know that the party always ends. I know that the wine always runs out. And I came so that my people could come to a party where the wine always flows, where the party never ends. I came for that. I came to remove from my people, remove their guilt from them, conquer sin for them. I came to remove the things that separate them from God. The sermon that you're about to hear is from Pastor Paul Borman at Hope Lutheran Church, located in Tigard, Oregon. For more information and for more content, go to hopeintigard.com. Before I read you the scripture from John chapter 2, I want to give you a little bit of a talk about wine. And don't worry, I'm not going to be up here pretending that I'm a sommelier or anything. I want to talk to you a little bit about what wine means in the Bible. A lot of the time, when the Bible refers to wine, it is referring to real wine, like it is today. Like Jesus changed real water into real wine. A lot of the time when the Bible refers to wine, that's what it is. But also, a lot of the time, sometimes, oftentimes, when the Bible refers to wine, it's referring to wine as a metaphor. It's um, sometimes used as a metaphor for the kinds of things that are in your life that intoxicate you, that you wish didn't have control over you but do, the things that are, that are your vices. Sometimes when the Bible refers to wine, it's referring to that particular struggle. And also, the, uh, the Bible, when it refers to wine, it can be using the metaphor um, to refer to abundance. You know, if you're drinking wine, it means that you're doing well. You have riches. You're drinking wine. You're not drinking water or anything else. The reason I'm telling you this is that um, even though in this account, wine really is wine, I'm going to be using some of these metaphors throughout the sermon to illustrate the bigger picture here. Also, second thing I want you to have in your mind before we read this text is that in this text, John leaves us just all kinds of clues all over the scripture so that we can know that he is revealing something about Jesus here. Now, he reveals it at the end of this text that this was intended to reveal the glory of Jesus. So I want you to open your heart to this text. I want you to open your heart to have an epiphany here this morning, whether this is the first time you're hearing this text or whether it's the thousandth time that you're hearing this text. We'll read from John chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, Now draw, out, draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. 
He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine, after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory. And his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and disciples. There they stayed for a few days. This is the word of the Lord. Yeah, thanks be to God. There is a much bigger picture here. There's a much bigger picture than just the picture of, of, of water and then wine. And John gives us a ton of clues to let us know that there is a bigger picture that we need to be seeing. The first one of those clues is the countdown. The first words of the text. And I guess technically it's a count up, really. <laughs> because this is the only time in John's gospel where he counts up to anything. And whenever there is a countdown, you know that what's coming at the end of it is something worth paying attention to. You know, it's like the countdown on New Year's Eve to the new year, or, or even if it's like the countdown that we have on our live stream that counts down to worship each Sunday morning. The countdown counts down to something that we need to be paying attention to. And this is the only time, I thought this was interesting, that this is the only time in John's gospel that he counts down or counts up to anything. The other gospels, they have it in their gospels that they count up to Jesus' resurrection. But John only does it here. He's letting us know that this is important, that there is something big, there is a big picture in this sign. And that's another clue that there's a big picture that John calls this a sign. He doesn't call it a miracle. He doesn't call it a wonder. He calls it a sign. Because he wants us to know that this isn't just a raw display of God's power meant for the people at the wedding and meant for us to be sitting there with our jaws on the ground. That's not what Jesus' purpose was here. His purpose was to give us a sign. And what does a sign do? A sign points to something that is bigger than itself. So John tells us that this is a sign. It's not a miracle. It's not a wonder. It's a sign. And he tells us, he actually gives it a number. He says, this is the first sign that Jesus ever performed. He's letting us know this is part of a much bigger picture. This is a sign pointing to that bigger picture. And this is part of the first things, right? Last week we looked at the first words of Jesus that John recorded for us. And, and today, as we continue to try and get our arms wrapped around Jesus and what he's going to be for our lives, now John reveals to us Jesus' first sign. And he's actually the only gospel writer who, who, who writes down this sign. He's the only one who records it. It's as if John were this artist, that, that he's there and he's, he's beautifully, artistically, and profoundly 
drawing a picture for us uh, of the Savior that he loves so dearly. I mean, you can think about it this way, that this, for John, is Jesus' premier signature sign. He's giving us little clues like this to tell us that if you don't understand the bigger picture of what Jesus is doing in this sign, then you don't understand the bigger picture of what Jesus is going to do for you. He's saying that in this this humanly speaking little insignificant miracle, you can see everything that Jesus is going to do for you. So I'm really hammering on this this morning. I'm really, I'm, I'm really pounding on these signs, these clues that John leaves for us about this bigger picture. Because I think with this sign in particular, we lose the bigger picture so easily. You know, there are so many things that we like to talk about with this sign. We, we talk about the wine in this sign. There's so much of it, right? There's so much wine here. No, I'm not a wine person. I'm not a sommelier or anything, but I know that this was good wine. It had a great bouquet. It had a great floral texture, I'm guessing. People estimate that this was about a thousand glasses of wine that Jesus made this evening, and, and, and it was passed on to this master of ceremonies, this guy who knew wine. We'll call him a sommelier. And this wine taster... This blind taster of this wine. He is so flabbergasted by its quality that he kind of distracts people from the party. He yanks the groom out of his own party in order to give him a piece of his mind. He says, What do you think you're doing? You are making your party a whole lot less than it could have been. No one's going to remember this. You should have given me this wine first to give to people. Your party would have been so much better. We lose the bigger picture in that because we love talking about the wine. How much of it there was, how beautiful it was, how about the timing of when it was brought out. You know, it's easy to get lost in that, and I think it's also easy. Many people get lost in the fact that, that it's kind of hard to believe that this is Jesus' first miracle. Now, I was asking myself this question. Why is it that Jesus performed this sign, this miracle first? Why did he do this one first? And I googled that question just to see what would come back, and I actually found an article of a person who wrote, and it was their opinion, that Jesus performed this miracle first so that no one would really notice him getting warmed up. Now, there are people at this this wedding, and most people are not going to be noticing that he turned water into wine. So he's kind of getting revved up with simple stuff before he actually goes out and affects anything real in humanity. And I've actually read things uh, from people, too, who talk about how Jesus is majoring in the minor here and, and how his first miracle is actually a miracle that caters to luxury instead of to human need. I mean, we have clues here that this was not a poor person's wedding. You know, there were servants here. There was a master of ceremonies here. There, was, there were multiple, multiple rounds of wine that was coming out 
to the guests there. And there was, there was a full, full guest list too. People noticed that. That there was no human need here. That there was no sin, there was no suffering, there was no guilt, there was no disease, there was no hurt for Jesus to heal. And they wonder about this. They wonder, why would Jesus do this as the first sign? Why would Jesus cater to luxury and not really actually help anyone out with his first sign? And if we're focusing on that, again, we're missing the bigger picture. You know, I've spent my entire first half of the sermon here pounding on this so that you can see that there is a bigger picture here and so that you can take this bigger picture home with you. And the bigger picture starts here with Jesus' words. Mary comes to him and says simply this, they are out of wine, there is no more wine. And the bigger picture starts here in the fact that Jesus cared about that. Jesus cared about the lack of the abundance of wine at that wedding. He cared about that. And in fact, he cared so much that he tells us that he's got a time planned out to deal with every lack of abundance. You know, it might seem like Jesus is far off here with his answer. Mary comes to him with her, her simple statement that there is no more wine. And Jesus replies by saying, woman. And by the way, if you're a mom, you understand how that might feel if your son comes up to you and, says, and calls you woman. It feels like Jesus is pretty detached here. He says, woman, why do you involve me in this? It seems like he is utterly detached. If, if we don't keep on reading, it seems like Jesus is just upset with Mary that, that she's just bringing him peanuts when he is here for something greater. But here's the big picture again. Jesus cared about the peanuts. Jesus cared about the wine. And I'll back out of this for a second, and I want to mention this insight too. That you can track this in the Gospels, and you can track this in the, in the entire rest of your reading of the book of John. This is how Jesus deals with people often. You know, when they come to him with a question or when they, when they come to him with a request, what Jesus does, maybe even more often than not, is he responds by giving them a curveball. And he responds to their question with a question. Why does he do that? It's because Jesus is always on a much higher spiritual plane than we are. And so he's always giving us questions, challenging us so that he can bring us more and more onto his spiritual plane so that we can see the bigger picture that he is seeing. And he's doing that with his mom today. His mom comes to him with wine and he says, my hour has not come yet. He's saying, Mom, I want you to see what I am seeing. I want you to know what I know. I want you to think about what I'm thinking about. My hour has not come yet. But it is coming. 
Here's another thing that you can know about John, that when he mentions the hour of Jesus that is coming, it refers to the same thing every time. Every time that the hour of Jesus is mentioned, it refers to Jesus' crucifixion. It refers to his death on the cross. It refers to the time in Jesus' life where he is going to drink the cup of suffering so that we wouldn't have to. The time where his wine of his life is going to be spilled out for us. He says to his mother, my hour is not yet here. But mom, I came for that, you know that. I came for the suffering of my people. I came for their joy, for their gladness, for their abundance. I came because I know that the party always ends. I know that the wine always runs out. And I came so that my people could come to a party where the wine always flows, where the party never ends. I came for that. I came to remove from my people, remove their guilt from them, conquer sin for them. I came to remove the things that separate them from God. There's a bigger picture here. Jesus didn't just come to deal with a social blunder here. He came to let us know that his hour is coming. The hour when he is going to wash away the sins that separate us from the blessing of God. That's why he gave us this sign. That's why John emphasizes this sign so much so that we know that Jesus is the one who came to make the goodness of God overflow in all of our lives. That Jesus is the one who came to make the wine flow forever in your life so that your life can just be one big, beautiful, joyous banquet. That Jesus is the one who came to drink the cup of God's wrath so that you would never have to. And what he's doing in this sign is he is pointing to that hour so that you can believe it so that you can know it, so that you can understand it, so that you can trust it in your heart. You can have that epiphany today. See, that's what I want you to know today. That's what I want you to take home. That's what I think John wants you to know from this text. These are his final words that he gives us about this sign. He says that Jesus' disciples believed in him. Jesus' disciples didn't just behold a miracle that happened, a a display of God's power. They did see his glory. God's glory was revealed in that moment. But what the disciples saw was someone who wanted to do something amazing for them, to take away their sins, to make the wine of joy flow forever, and they believed that he would do it for them. So here's why, here's how I want to send you home today. I want to send you home with this. Uh, First, uh, a smaller application, but an important one nonetheless. 
Jesus cares about the little things. And he cares about them a lot. He really does. You can see that in the way that he turned water into wine to solve the problem of wine running out at a wedding. He cares about the little things. And he wants to hear about your little things so that he can answer them. Here's the second thing. If you're a person whose life is going really well right now, here's what you get to believe out of this text. You get to believe that Jesus came to make it even better. You get to believe that Jesus came to top off the cup of your life to fill it up so that it overflows. You get to believe that. And if you're someone whose life is not quite going all kinds of the right ways, if you're a young person who is wondering what to do next, if you're someone who's got a relationship that is really causing them pain, if you're someone who's looking at a bank account and wondering how it's going to work out, if you're someone whose professional life is in doubt right now, here's what you get to believe. You get to believe that the wine will never run out. You get to believe that there will always be joy for you. And you get to look forward just like Jesus did in this text to your hour. Because just like Jesus was looking forward, you get to look forward because your hour, the best moments of your life, both here on earth and eternal, are yet to come. So I'm going to get cheesy here for a second. (laughs) Maybe you'll laugh at me, maybe you won't. Here's what I think we should do today in our hearts. Cheers to that. I think we should raise a toast to that in our hearts because there will always be gladness for us. That is why Jesus came. That is what he is making a sign to us in this text today. That the wine will never run out. That his hour has not come yet. That our hour in heaven has not come yet. And here's something that everybody in this room needs to believe here. There are no more final emergencies for anyone. The worst thing that can happen to any single one of us today is that we get to party with Jesus now. And here on earth, this is what we get to do. We get to wait for the party that will never end. The party to end all parties. You can believe in that. Or just like John said, you can believe in him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, all of us come in here today with different needs and with different lacks. Today we saw a bride and a groom who were running out of wine. Us here today, we have righteousness, we have sin. Lord, you are the one who changes sin into forgiveness. Lord, some here are coming in with life circumstances that aren't what we want them to be, but you are the one who turns water into wine. 
Lord, some people came in today with worries about what will happen. I ask you to help us to see that you are the one who turns our worries into kept promises. Lord, open our eyes today so that we can see your glory. Open our hearts to see that you are the one that we can trust to take all the way to blessing. We pray for this in your great name.